welcome to the Free Cities podcast. My name is Timothy Allen, and this is the official podcast of the Free Cities Foundation. Hello, and welcome to episode number 34 of the Free Cities podcast. Well, it's another of my discussions from Montenegro again this week, and this time it's part one of two conversations I had with none other than the founder and president of the Free Cities Foundation himself, Titus Gable. Now, since most of you will know who Titus is, I will keep this intro brief. Obviously, he's done many interviews before, so I did try my best to keep the conversation away from the usual free private cities talking points and delve a little deeper into the history of different city-state models and their modern-day incarnations. I also got to probe a little into Titus's own history and motivations, as well as some of his predictions for the future of the idea that government should be a service. Well, we recorded together on two separate occasions and part two of this conversation will be a deep dive into medieval city-states, which was a discussion I've been pining to have for many months now. So look out for that one over the next few weeks. And of course, without further ado, in the meantime, just sit back, relax and enjoy my conversation with Titus Gable. Well, I think, you know, you've done a lot of interviews, almost, you know, just look on our YouTube channel. There are hundreds yeah. of interviews with you. And I would imagine that when most people interview you, they come up with roughly the same questions. Is that right? That's true. And it's it's surprising how rarely new questions are popping up, right? Remember the last really new question was about, I don't know, half a year ago, Somebody asked me who will build the cemeteries in the free private cities. And that was really, that, that was a new question, was a first timer. But on the other hand, I, I uh, cannot complain. I mean, it's, it's natural that if you hear first time about the free private cities concept, some, some questions will pop up immediately, right? So like, it, it, is it for everyone or do you have to be rich to be there? And um how do you protect against a host nation taking over? And the other one is what about social security? So this is basically, this is the the, the main questions. And um, I uh, I have developed answers to that because uh, it was natural. And, and then the next level would be the more uh, tricky questions, which people who really thought themselves into the model have, which is uh, what about contract changes, right? This is a very legitimate question. Um, uh, and and uh, those things of types like how do you deal with people who are born in the city? How what what about um, uh, uh, people coming later? Will they have a different contract? And how do you manage that? And th- these are all also legitimate questions, second level, I would say, right? So, and then you have a lot of people who just. Um, do not fully get fully get the model and they say it's very important who who owns the company so if i'm the good guy it's okay but if another one's taking over it's bad but that is not a model 
because it's a contract, right? It doesn't play a role who owns the operating company. That's hard to understand for many. And the other thing is about democracy. Um, if I say, okay, it's just, <laughs> what I do is just relatively limited services. And for everything else, you're up on your own. So why do, do you, you don't need a parliament if you can make the decision for your own? That's also very hard to understand for people who have living their whole life in traditional legacy systems. Yeah, so this is more or less <laughs> the, the universe of questions that's normally popping up and, and, and rightly so. And um, I mean, I'm glad that I'm, I'm at least um, invited to, to talk about that. Because often, um, especially with um, mainstream journalists, um, they say yeah, they're against social security and against democracy. And of course, without giving any explanation, right? They just try to put us in a bad light. And um, and so far, I'm I'm happy for everyone who is asking me uh, why this model is working in this way and not in another, because there's a reason for everything. Like with the democracy thing, if you cannot, if if you can decide for yourself, uh, Tim, then why do you need a parliament, right? You don't, because self determination is just our model and not political participation. This is, of course, different if, if the ruler of a city can make all kinds of decisions, then you would definitely have to come back to a participation model. So, But, but this is something I haven't found maybe the ideal way to put it so that all people can understand, but um, I'm also training every interview. Maybe then one, one good way to approach it might be to talk about examples from the past that have... Mm -hmm. I think that from my experience, I mean, I... I've, I'm relatively new to these concepts, but I've, I've sat down with almost 40 people now and had conversations r around this topic. And um, what I, one of the things I've drawn from that is that without a working example, it's very, it's all theory and hypoth it's hypothetical, which is not good. Um, and we have examples of like Prospera, we have, we have you know, on the spectrum of, of the model, we have an example. But really, I think maybe we have to look to the past to find working examples. Is that right? I mean, it's something I haven't spoken a lot about on this podcast. And I, I'd quite like to find people who know about, you know, like, say, the, uh, oh, I don't know, the medieval cities, for example, mm. that a lot of people refer to. So maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, I've studied all those models to find precedents, right? Because I'm I'm not the top-down guy. I say, hey, I have an idea and <laughs> the whole world has to follow it. Uh, I've, I rather was looking for what was working in the past and then how can we transform this into today's world? And in so far, rightly, you say we need examples. And, and that is also the reason why I'm not only active in promoting the idea, but I also want to make it a reality. I mean, I'm a lawyer by education and later an MBA, but 20 years ago, I, I stopped being a lawyer and, and became an entrepreneur in the mining sector. And I built up a relatively successful um, uh, company out of nothing with a partner, uh, which is uh, now producing 10,000 barrels oil per day, which is had, had a gold mine, tungsten mine. And um, so I think my capacity of creating companies, I, I have to use that in, in for this purpose now. And that's what I do for the rest of my life. And uh, if you haven't heard, hey, what about your your Prospera model, right? So, I mean, I've been involved in Prospera early on. 
Um, I helped them designing their legal structure. I um, did now in the last two years together with my partners negotiate with an African government um, to get uh, a CD-like autonomy. But unfortunately, there was a change in government and the new leader doesn't like the idea. So that is what can happen. And that will happen again. So, but now coming back to the to the working example. So we will cre we will create new working examples so that it's it's much easier to point to people. Hey, this is how it looks like instead of explaining a theoretical concept. But if you go back in time, um, before we come to the medieval cities, I would come uh, go back not that far. Let's go back to the 1960s with the first special economic zones, <clears throat> and that started. Um, uh, with, I would say, one of the, the, the blueprints. I mean, there have been special zones back in ancient times, right, in Roman times. But in the in the new time, I think it started with the Shannon Airport in Ireland, where the <clears throat> where the planes coming from continental Europe had to make a stop over to full fuel up before they go the the big journey over the Atlantic. And then at the end of the fifties, the, the the planes were technically so that they could make this nonstop. Right, from Paris directly to uh, New York without stopover at Shannon Airport in Ireland. And then the people in Shannon, several thousand people worked there, uh, or the government in Ireland said, hey, what do we do? They're all losing their jobs. And they came to the idea, let's create something which is making incentives for companies to come here despite the airport is gone. And they basically made the decision that in Shannon, there will be different rules which are more favorable to companies, lesser, lower taxes, lesser regulation, no import-export uh, duties, you name it. And that worked, right? And then in the 60s, about, well, three, four, five, those, what was later called a special economic zone, um, before it was called free trade zone or whatever, of free zone, you have all kinds of names, but I think there's an official United Nations uh, agreement that this these are all put together under the umbrella term, special economic zone. And there was so first, not much was happening, uh, but if you would say in the 1960s, you had maybe five zones. And can you imagine that today, uh, do you have a guess how many zones we have that are called special economic zones? Uh, I, I mean, it would be a shot in the dark, I don't know, 30. 5,000, oh, right? over okay, 5,000 right. <laughs> in 145 something countries, right? And so this is definitely a model, uh, a success model. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been copied so often. And so a special economic zone is not so much different from my free private city concept because it says, okay, there are some areas where there will be different rules. And it will, mostly there's a private administrative company uh, running the, uh, the the special economic zones, um, most of them are just for businesses, uh, not for residents. They're even forbidden for residents. So, um, but here's the thing: every single special economic zone in the world is a confession and a commitment. A confession of the state. Well, obviously, our rules are not the best. Right. <laughs> Otherwise, there would be no need for such a zone. And the commitment is we guarantee that in this zone you can you can do according to these rules. Because if we change those rules, which can happen in some countries, then companies will never come again because they need uh, long-term stability. And so most of these zones have guaranteed of 50 years or something. And um, this is 
a good example of how a model can work that says, I have different ideas. I would propose to you state that in a certain defined area, we try out a different set of rules. And I said it has, has already been, been done. It's called a special economic zone. What we do now, we extend that autonomy a bit and we make it open to residents. And we also want to have our own dispute resolution system. So this is new, but it's not totally new because you have the Dubai International Financial Center, which exactly had that problem. You know, Dubai is a success story, but it was not so easy in the beginning. And eventually they found, okay, we have a lot of special economic zones. We have a lot of manufacturing there, but the big, we want to attract the financing world, the financing companies, but they're not coming. Why they're not coming? Well, this was back in the 80s, 90s, right? Well, because they don't like Sharia law, where you get put in prison if you owe something to somebody, right? So they're not coming. And then the, the, the sheikh asked, okay, let's just import another law that is more... Um, that is more uh, popular with the financing companies. And what is this? And the advisors told him, well, if you look at um, the big financial hubs like London, New York, Singapore, Hong Kong, they're all rolling on common law, actually on British common law in, 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 in the, as the root. And I said, well, then let's, let's make a common law system. And the other thing is, yeah, but people do not trust uh, local courts in the Arabian world. That's just a given. Even if it's not justified, but that's a given. And then he said, well, then let's import judges from London. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, actually, that's what happened, right? So th that is what happened. The, the, uh, they came up with their own common law system, um, which is in the meantime was even extended to family law because the high potential financial managers also do not want to be subject to Sharia law when it comes to marriage or, or, or inheritance. Um, and they have imported judges from, uh, from Singapore, from, from London, from other common law countries. And they have an own court system. So that is another working example. And the success is tremendous. I mean, they started with 10 or 30 companies and now they are up to, they have more than 1,000 companies registered in the DIFC, which is a small area of Dubai. It's about a square mile or something um, uh, and um, um, uh, or a quarter of a mile and a quarter of a square mile. And, and they are, um, I think, responsible for about 10% of Dubai's GDP. So you can say, okay, there is a working example. They have own regulatory uh, uh, capacities. They have a different set of rules, which is totally different from the rest of Dubai. They have own court system. And now what is missing to a free private city would be a contract to, with, with people and own security with own capacities as well. And that is then you come to Honduras, right? <laughs> where, where you have those. And then you can say, and Honduras is modeled after Hong Kong, which is a, officially called a special administrative region. That means it belongs to a country, in this case, China, which is responsible for still for foreign policy and um, uh, defense. But uh, other everything else, the special administrative region, they have own parliament, they have own police, they have own, they have even own flag and own currency, own courts. Um, I mean, put aside the problems that Hong Kong has with China, um, and this is uh, 
one of the issues that people came up with about free private cities and host nation and 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 rightly so but that is not a topic now i think the the model is um is there is a system within a system and that is existing it's called a uh, special administrative free region like hong kong macau then you have a very extended special economic zones like the dubai international financial center which is rather a special administrative region and a special economic zone. And you have new models like um, the zones in Honduras. With some people say it's a special economic zone, but I would, I would clearly say it's it's much, much more because they basically have a blank sheet and making rules. And okay, they need per, a permit uh, or they, they need approval by the government uh, committee. But once the approval is there, this this is a different system. And and so far, um, and, and the reason for that is that the Honduran government people, they wanted to create a Hong Kong type environment in Honduras. So it's not a wonder they are as autonomous in, in many areas as Hong Kong uh, or Macau are. And in so far, this is hopefully answering a question about working examples. Um, of course, we want to get one step further with... Um, a government contract or a contract government as a service uh, government is giving you a service contract. You are party to this contract. You're protected by the contract. And the first, and even there, I can put to a working example, which is the Sede Morazan and the Sede Prospera, which are giving out, and especially Prospera has an agreement of coexistence uh, with its uh, residents, and they are protected. They have a bill of rights in that agreement. Um, so it's it's there, and this is also very helpful when negotiating with governments. Um, I remember when I was negotiating with the government in Central America a year or two, yeah, one and a half years ago, um, you could see the relief in their faces when I said, well, a similar law is already existing in Honduras, and there's another one in Azerbaijan, which gives the special economic zone a large autonomy you could see formally the relief in their faces because as a politician coming up with something completely new is is a hard is a hard sell and and if you say it's already there right that that helps and and so far i think this is also very encouraging because i see here a trend starting in the 1960s with shannon special economic zones becoming not only more and more but becoming also more and more autonomous from the host nation I see a trend here and, and this is a strong momentum and there's a reason why not only me or only the Free Cities Foundation is, is here or my company Tipolis, but uh, there are about, I would say, two handfuls of players worldwide who really want to make something like that um, happening. And that shows me that this is just the time is right now. Something <clears throat> I just occurred to me on your kind of stages of autonomy there mm. is quite near the end was security mm -hmm. that does seem like a, a a contentious one because it's it's potentially um fighting the kind of monopoly on violence that a state might have do you know what i mean i i, I could see that being a very strong hurdle i mean it's almost the one of the final stages of autonomy really yes um, the reason why this was put in the Honduran Sede law was that exactly that should wanted they wanted to avoid that 
the police and the prosecution are used for economic purposes. Right? You have seen this in the former Soviet Union countries. They um, make all kinds of claims against you, a violation of environmental law. Unless you give them 10% of the company, then they drop the claim, right? And um, I think there was a, was a case with water monopoly in, in Rotan where the, the water monopolists wanted to... Uh, because uh, Prospera, the city Prospera, was providing water to the uh, neighboring community, and and the water monopolists they wanted to stop that, so they sent the police in, but they were stopped at the border hmm. because it hey, is a city, you have no uh, competency here. Um, so th- th- this is a typical uh, example of why this is necessary, because in many countries the police is not used as what it should be protecting people, but it's used as a as a method to. Uh, to get your economic purposes uh, uh, against other people in the right uh, way for for, uh, for for you. But, um, and so far you are right, this is difficult, but I think this is also necessary. And what we are doing is um, we are negotiating with governments um, uh, saying, okay, this is what we need. We need some internal autonomy and these are the areas and there are compromises possible, for example, that if there is capital crime like um, uh, murder or, or, or rape or a big robbery, then we make a, a joint commission with your police and investigate that. The other thing which is very, at the moment, not um, not to, to overcome is, is criminal law. The, most countries disagree that we have a different criminal law. So the compromise is we take your criminal law and uh, but we applied with our institution so that is not so difficult because you do you know there are already special economic zones which have private security and all that so that is that uh, i can i mean this is very limited experience right because it's a new market this is a new system but i have negotiated now about with i would say 10 uh, 10 governments in the last five years and i can say criminal law to to um to get rid of criminal law and replace it by an own system is is basically not doable. But to get own security and have not the police of the host nation being competent for your zone, that is that is negotiable. That is the case. Right? It's just a, a real world experience. Which brings me on to the the most commonly bought up. Um, question whenever i speak to anyone about um you know especially any of these jurisdictions is what happens when the government just comes in and says we want it and how do you mitigate that if at all yeah you you have to mitigate it i mean this is from the beginning the the biggest problem right if you are too successful or you have you are a problem right (laughs) but on the other hand this is not a new thing right you have uh special economic zones that are successful. You have small countries like Monaco that are extremely successful or Liechtenstein, why they are not invaded by France or Switzerland or Austria, right? And the reason is it's a trade-off. And uh, so Monaco is not invaded by France because they um, they nearly were in the 1960s, right? Because, and here is, is, is a very instructive example. Monaco is income, uh, has no income tax. So the in the 60s, 
uh, rich French millionaires and business people, they were all making their money in uh, France and then just moving to Monaco. And so they they um, they didn't pay taxes for their wealth any longer to France, but uh, in Monaco there was no, and that made the French angry, right? So and that they threatened to uh, to block Monaco completely, blocked it for a couple of weeks, so that nobody could go in and out. And Mor Monaco is totally surrounded by France; it has just an open border to the sea. And um, eventually, here's how this was solved. There was an agreement made. It's instructive because Monaco also had friends, like in the American government, right? After all, uh, the um, prince was married to Grace Kelly, who was a U.S. famous actress, right? And they had friends in some governments, Italy, Vatican, the U.S. And and they said, hey, to... I mean, it, uh, there's even a movie about it, but I think that that was true that the American foreign minister said to the French, do you, do you want to bomb Monaco? And um, of course not, because it's a reputational issue. And that led eventually to uh, coming, the parties coming together at the negotiation table. And now it's here's something about the Monegasque, that's how to call, you call people from Monaco, their Monegasque diplomat told me, he said, what helped us, was that we had really kept up all the protocols and treaties of the past going back sometimes hundreds and hundreds of years that they had with the French government made in the past. And they said they, they pointed to some points in that treaties, right? And eventually, here's what, what, what happened. There was a compromise reached in, I think, in the year 1963 or so. And they said, okay... Every, from now on, people moving to Monaco from France have to pay taxes to France. But not anybody else. Just like you or me coming to Monaco, we have no problem. If we have French nationality, we have. Yes. But people who have moved to, France, uh, to Monaco before this date, 1963... They are, they, are, they are off, right? They are grandfathering their, their rights. So this is something This is still valid today. So there was a compromise reached, and now you have the situation that Monaco has. Monaco is also paying for French policemen if they have a big football game or the or the Grand Prix, right? They have not enough police to cover that event, but they're they're hiring French police and they're paying for it. They're paying for infrastructure uh, towards the Nice Airport and all that. So Monaco has an has a use for France because it's attracting a lot of people who will not then just stay in Monaco, but they will also spend money outside. So all the three communities, French communities surrounding Monaco are very affluent, all three of them, for a reason, right? And and there's this glamour aspect and everything. On the other hand, the painful aspect is mitigated by this contract. The contract says you have to have the same level of tax for value-added tax, and for cigarettes and liquor and, and gas. Because otherwise, nobody. if you have no gas tax in Monaco and you have in France, well, all the gas stations in France near Monaco, 50 kilometers, 100 kilometers, would go out of business. Typical special economic zone problem. And they have mitigated that. So the pain side for the French is covered by this contract, but there's still a, a bonus side for the French. The, that is the, the reputation of Monaco attracting people to the whole Côte d'Azur. And that is the main answer to your question, is you have to create a win-win situation. 
or mitigate the pain for the country. Now, how do we do this other than with what I just said? Well, first and foremost, it's treaties. It's um, make it very painful for the country to just violate what they have uh, signed. We are seeing that uh, um, real life uh, in, in Honduras, right? There was a new government elected. They said, this is all illegal. Yes, we have changed the constitution. Yes, we have made a say the law, but this is all illegal, right, from day one, which is obviously not very convincing. And they will probably, very probably lose their their case. So what governments then will probably, they kick the can down the road. Um, and the next government will say, hey, maybe we should come back to the negotiation table. And then again, my answer, and I have written in my book about that, it's, it's, you, you need several layers of protection. The first and foremost is the, is the uh, treaty with investor protection clauses. And then the company that is running the show should be from a, from a country that has a bilateral investor protection agreement with the host nation, which was the case in Honduras, right? And, and, and on purpose. And it works now. And so that it's very painful to just violate the treaties they have signed. Um, that is one aspect. The other aspect is that comes into place after about some years, uh, five to ten years. There will be a lot of jobs in this um, uh, entity. In a free private city, there will be a lot of jobs. A lot of companies from the host nation will make business in the in, in the free private city, in the zone, and a lot of families will depend on uh, their income and these are all voters or they are, have relatives who are voters um, so this is another incentive for the host nation not to destroy and the third is that we can already announce that our people are highly mobile high potential from all over the world um, not only of course the majority probably will be from the host nation but many many good people and if you invade the city we will just leave Right, <laughs> and it's it's not the success model any longer. It's just, and that that is what will happen to Hong Kong. Hong Kong will, if if China continues to basically mob Hong Kong and 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 make it a normal Chinese cities, well, then it will be a normal Chinese cities. It will not have all the advantages and and that Hong Kong had. And um, this is this is another thing where we can clearly say it's not in the country's interest to do that. And there there will always be. A, in the country, political opposition who will say uh, how stupid it is to militarily invade a free private city if, if the city is making payments to the country, if so and so people, so and so many people are profiting from the free private city. Um, and I think this is not total security, but it will um, it will help. And it's uh, interesting to see what will be the outcome of, of the Honduran model. Um, uh, Prospera has made a claim of $10 billion against Honduras, uh, which is 50 years of uh, lost profits <laughs> and, and what they have invested so far. Uh, and in so far, my gut feeling is at the end of the day, there will be an agreement, maybe with, not with this, but with the next government. I think also <clears throat> in talking to Hondurans about this, um, a lot of them are of the opinion that originally the pushback on the ZAs was a political move at the election time. And now they're in power and, and things are sort of moving along. It's chilling out a little bit, which makes total sense to me. And arguably that's, um, that's the way it will play out. Um, 
Can I ask a question about Monaco? Yeah. What is the history of Monaco? How how has Monaco ended up being what it is now? Well, it originally was hijacked by a. Mo- <laughs> Uh, I mean, does this go you, way back in history? Yeah, Is in twelve hundred, whatever. There oh, was okay. uh, uh, there was a was a conflict, uh, a religious conflict, like so many in the past of Europe, between people who were uh, supporters of the Pope and, and enemies of the Pope at that time. And I think the the Grimaldi family from originally from Genoa in Italy, they were supporters of the Pope, and the enemies of the Pope were holding the fortress of what is today Monaco, and. Uh, under disguise as a monk, uh, one of the Grimaldi knights went in, opened the doors, and then they took over. And they kept ruling that rock <laughs> since um, uh, yeah, since 1291 or so, so 700 years about or something like that. And um, they uh, they came under under pressure several times, were um, invaded. Um, uh, and and not in power, but they always get back in power after the wars ended. And um, they were also bigger in in the past. It's a very curious story that the surrounding French communities, including Monton, um, once belonged to Monaco. So it was much bigger than today. Today it's only two square uh, kilometers, which is the second smallest country in the world. But it was about much 20, 20 times that size until 1860, so not so so long ago, and then there was this um, referendum where parts of what is what was Italy were going or, or Savoy were going to France and Monaco. Also, the most of the areas they voted to be become part of France, and the reason one of the reasons was that France had no income tax. <laughs> <laughs> at that time, right? And Monaco had. Ironic. And that, that's incredible. <laughs> well, maybe on the long term it was a bad deal, I think. But it's um, it, it, it took some time and I think uh, another decades until the prince of Monaco realized that 90% of his income is coming from the casino and other stuff. So they said oh, the income tax is only counting for 5%. Forget about it. And he said from, from now on, I think it's about 1890s. So from now on, there's no more income tax in Monaco, and that has is still the case, right? Despite the, the casino is not really of relevance today, um, 50% of their income they are making from value added tax, which they have to use the high French rate, as you, as I told you, it's about 20%, and uh, it is 20%, and and then they have uh, um, uh, real estate transaction taxes. Uh, given the high valuation of of uh, real estate in Monaco, that also accounts for a lot. And they still own the SPM, the casino and hotels. But to my knowledge, it only accounts for five to ten percent of the income today. So the casino doesn't really play a big role any longer. But uh, a real estate transaction and and value added tax does. And is that you know that is Monaco? Does that hark back to the time of medieval city states and things like that? Is like what was the landscape like? <coughs> no, it was a then? real principality. It uh, wasn't a city state. I mean, in the medieval times, and, and and this is a lot to talk. We can we can maybe have an extra podcast on on medieval times and city states. The the medieval city states were basically. Uh, 
coming into existence when cities really came into existence uh, in, in Germany and Italy? I mean, you had some from Roman times, but uh, not many, especially in Central Europe, or a handful. And and then in, uh, in, in the Middle Ages, the city as such became something which came into existence. And over the years, the people found out, and first in the old cities like Cologne, right, which was a city in, back in, in Roman times, um, back in 1100, they said they were, like all cities, they were part of a bishop, which was a not only a religious, but also a factual leader, or a prince, right, or a duke or whatever, right, grand duke. So the whole of uh, called uh, Holy Roman Empire of German nation um, was uh, consisting of what is today Germany and, and Italy, um, and, uh, and and they had uh, all kinds of monarchs, right, <laughs> hundreds and thousands of different um, um, principalities and whatever. And in the cities, the people found out relatively soon that the monarch doesn't care about them. And since they were all sitting together so densely, they were very creative and they would they were successful. And I said, this monarch, be the bishop or a prince, he's sitting on his uh, castle and he doesn't know what's going on here. He's just taking taxes, but he don't care because we need extra rules because the city is working differently than the rest of the country because it's so much denser. And we want to trade with other cities and we can't because of these duties and all that. So and. And all kinds of regulation, uh, how to, if you're allowed to make a certain profession, right? I mean, it's not like today that you just, you choose your profession. You could sometimes only inherit what your father did or whatever the monarch came up with, uh, crazy ideas, who is allowed to do what. So and it, I, I remember reading about the first attempts in Cologne was around 1100, as we want to get rid of our bishop. Right? We want to be independent only under the emperor. And the emperor was far away and had no standing army, no standing administration. So it was more a formal thing. They would be still under the uh, empire, but uh, within that empire, relatively autonomous. And it took really 100 years for Cologne to, to eventually get rid of the bishop. And uh, they did this in a, in a way that they militarily beat him with the support of a neighboring prince. Right? <laughs> That's how things went at that, back at that time. But that brought them, uh, to, and other cities were similar, that, brought, that gave them the autonomy they were desiring since 100 years. So they could make their own rules. They established a city council. And uh, other cities followed where basically was the business people, the, the honorable people that making all the decisions. And over time, the um, number of voters increased. And then you has, had these extremely successful upper Italian cities, right, which really became very powerful. And they also, um, uh, it's a little bit like the, the ancient Greek polis. You could really see what is then going wrong with democracy over time, right? In the Italian city-states, it was a powerful family who basically took over, like Genova or Pisa or Florence, was a Medici family in, in Florence, which basically was the power family. And, and the people from Venice, they said, we don't want that. We don't want one family to rule the show. And so they came up with a very complicated voting system, which, uh, on the other hand... Um, enabled that 
uh, there was not uh, it wasn't impossible to to buy votes by making any kind of promises because you didn't know how you were voted. You were a group of electors were elected. They elected others who elected others who eventually named the government. So it was unforeseeable who would be in government. And that means no bribing of votes, no populistic messages to get voted, no uh, welfare state promises and, and things like that. But on the other hand, that was a successful model. So Venice was a, con was a, was a city which originally started under the still being part of the East Roman Byzantic Empire and eventually was just factually independent and lasted for 1100 years without a single government overthrown that that's huge and and this city had the biggest biggest naval fleet in the 1600s of the of the world right so you, with the right system astonishing things are possible what is what was it about venice then that meant they went down that route do you know were there you know would, Why? Why weren't they just? Why weren't they a family deciding to take control and and, and run a place? Yeah, because it was not possible uh, for, uh, during this uh, because of the system they had established. Yeah, what, I'm I'm wondering why they established that system. Who you know? What because they that? looked at the other Italian cities and saw what was happening. Probably in the beginning they had the same system uh, like the German cities, like the other Italian cities, like. The, the business people are electing uh, a council and this council then, and, and over time, the, the number of voters grew, right? There was uh, other groups, social groups that were entitled to vote. And then you had these um, things that uh, powerful uh, networks would basically uh, have the power in their hands and distribute it amongst themselves. So they, at one point in time, they just... Uh, observed what was happening in, in Genoa and Pisa and Florence and I said we don't want that so and and then they came up with this complicated system you maybe know it from 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 movies they have this mask on so that people don't even know who is the other so they said we we have to uh, guarantee that that Everybody will eventually become a little bit like Switzerland. Everybody will become part of the government sooner or later, but we don't know who in advance. So, I mean, out of the top of my head, I remember it's super complicated. So I think the population of Venice is electing 25 um, election men. These 25, something like that, right? These 25 nominate another 25 people who are then nominating another the government or something like that so it's it's for you as a, as as an individual or political powerful person or rich person you cannot really influence that process so that you know who will at the end be in the government and that worked for uh, for uh, very very successfully and that's probably the reason why uh, there was always a majority in Venice not to change the system because they saw what happened in other places and they saw how successful they were, they were themselves were. Two questions then. First of all, how long, whether you know this or not, how long was the transition into that system from the other one? And my second question is going to have to be what finally caused the end of it? Uh, to the first question, I don't know, frankly, uh, but I th assume when they were started around the year 690-something, uh, they were probably just a tribal, uh, people fleeing the uh, the downfall of, of the, the West Roman Empire 
on a lagoon, right? Because it can be defended more easily and probably just there was a leader and elected a chief or whatever. And I think over time they um, they were normal and it took several hundred years until they really developed what they later became so successfully in. And uh, if, if I have written that uh, or I have read that, that they really were, they wanted to, not to make the same mistake as the other Italian city. So that has to be happen around 1400, 1500 then. And Venice came to an end, 1797, when Napoleon invaded the city. And this is a good question. What brought it to an end? I mean, after Napoleon was gone in 1815, you could have expected, hey, maybe they, they raise again, right? But no, that was obviously not really. The people were probably a little bit like the West today, too long, too successful, too wealthy. And um, you, you know that saying that um, uh, hard times create good people or strong people and uh, strong people create good times, good times create weak people and weak people create bad times. And I think that's what happened in Venice. So despite being so successful over such a long period of time, they had not enough energy and power to re-establish Venice when uh, Napoleon was gone as an independent entity. So they first became part of Austrian-Hungarian um, Empire and then eventually Italy. And it's only now that uh, people uh, want to to make this autonomous again, right? <laughs> Uh, there is a movement in Venetia uh, to make it an at least an independent, more independent region within Italy. Um, and also, we're, um, we are now sitting here in Montenegro, and not far from here is Dubrovnik, which was um, called Ragusa, and this was known as the little sister of Venice. So they copied Venice. They were all on a much smaller scale, very successful. And they had their, their their motto of was we are not giving away our, our freedom not not for every gold in the world, so they had a really strong self determination liberty focus, and and they kept it up and until they also were militarily beaten, but uh, you can see that um, because people think yeah city is 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 uh, so small and it has is defenseless no no not at all I mean few people know that. Singapore has submarines and more tanks than the German army, right? So it's it's just not true. With with economic power comes military power, and uh, especially the Venice people have said, we don't want to spend our people's lives in wars. Let's hire soldiers of fortune. That's what they always did. That's interesting. So I mean, the you're alluding to the cyclical nature of top down, bottom up governance basically or freedom authoritarianism you know is it an eternal struggle i mean is is this something that uh, never gets fixed it's just a, a the breath of society yeah, the, 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 this i mean this becoming decadent if if you are successful over generations is probably not stoppable but what we can do and that is my idea is to establish not only one venice but hundreds and then if some of them fail the model will still survive hmm. i mean i mean well let's talk about that then you know number one in your in your mind's eye what i what i what i find impressive about what you're doing and i i just even acknowledging this last night when we were talking 
is that you're thinking a long term in the future. And a lot of what you're doing now is like, well, we need to do this now. And we're like, well, why? And say, well, because in nine years time, um, there's going to be an election here. And, and so if we can start, you know, and that for me, that's an unusual way of thinking. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by the mind of someone who's linked, thinking that long term in the future. But obviously thinking a lot further. So when you go to this place, the place in, in the future where you find a myriad of city-states or t- independent jurisdictions, uh, you know, describe that landscape for me. You know, what does it look like? What's the, what's the best outcome that you see mm-hmm. and what's the timeline? Well, timeline is a difficult question, right? So my experience uh, in life is that it always takes longer and it's more difficult than you think. And it's probably the same here. Nevertheless, I was surprised that we could start so early in Honduras, but this was the kind of, well, the Honduran government was was enabling that because they wanted to create Hong Kongs and not private cities. But we, and, and the people who were running the show at Prospera, they, they stumbled upon me and said, hey, can we make Prospera a little bit more free private city-like? And it's this top-down Hong Kong approach where a governor called technical secretary is making all the decisions. And and we did, right? So so uh, Prosper is now a charter slash uh, contractual city as both. Uh, but what is the ideal world in the future? Let, let me describe it this way. If you were a young person um, born in a free private city, um, you would be under the contract of your parents. And then when you are 18, which would probably be the age that, would define that you're an adult, could be any other age, but let's let's keep with 18. Then the city would give you a year to decide if you also want to become a contractual person, a party on your own. So you can travel the world, look at other places, and probably what's happening is that you say, well, there is a more communitarian basic income society, but there are a lot of young girls and you have free love. And But it, that's least what people say, right? <laughs> so you, as a young person, you would maybe move into that uh, for a time, right? Um, being more idealistic and, 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 and things like that. There's a lot of artists there and, and music and culture and... And then after some years, you probably would like to start family, becoming more successfully economically, and, and then you would move back to a free private city, say, because you have everything here, right? You can start a business within uh, uh, five minutes. You, uh, you, you can put your money aside. It will not be taxed away. They will not change the rules. So you can, you can plan for your pension right now, right? And then... Uh, start a family there knowing that you can send out your children at night at midnight and without fear so they said that's probably the good place for me in my 30s 40s 50s right and then maybe when and this is all working and then you're getting old and saying hey my my father and my mother they are from from whatever denmark right so i want to to experience all the original tradition danish culture um, and and um, maybe you then move um, to a more um, Alabama type of uh, uh, society where's where's a little bit calmer, right? Where's not so much hustle and and business like in a free private city. It's more in a, um, a resort type of environment, right? And and if you have a cultural background or ethnic background and from from some areas, then maybe you want to go back to that. 
uh, we don't know if this is still the case in 300 years but it, it this is just what i'm thinking that you can live a portfolio life if you want but you can also stay in one city where you can maybe you have um areas in the city that are um catering those needs right but i think it's very fascinating or a good model for young people what i've heard about the amish people in the u.s right this is an intentional community with a religious community but they say to the young people um now you should learn about the outside world and travel around for two years the world and then you decide if you want to come back to us or go somewhere else and if, i heard they lose about 50 percent, but it's a good model it's mm. a good model and i think this is this is my vision of the future that um these all kinds of ideas will compete right i'm st my, what i have offered in my book and my concept and in the white paper is a free private city this is just a start and you go from there in all kinds of direction and, and joe quirk the, the president of the sea setting institute he rightly said well in 50 years time the most successful societies will probably <laughs> will not something that is in discussion today we, we there's no ideology existing yet that would describe them. And maybe this is the case. And I think the learning curve will be much steeper. It took 70 years to find out the Soviet Union communism does not work, right? Uh, but if you have hundreds of competing um, societies, then you will find out much quicker and you can copy much quicker what is working and what, what is not working. You give it up. Mm -hmm. So, and the people would expect that from you, right? They would point with their finger to the neighbors and they, they do it like this. They pay less, they have product better quality of administration. So, why don't we do that, right? And maybe <clears throat> a majority of people will maybe re want to remain in their nation states, but even there, they would say, hey, these free private city guys, they have a contract with the with the operator. We want a contract too from you government. So this these are the effects that I see coming. And um, uh, of course, it depends that that we are successful, and that's why we just that that why I'm so keen to start now, even if only the next generation will will really see this world unfolding. Yeah, one of the very important components of that model is the ability to travel, obviously. And we've all seen an incredibly dangerous precedent set, I would imagine, over the pandemic, for mm. example. Um, what, what is your general feeling about that? Because even if your individual private cities are welcoming to you, if you can't fly over someone's, you know, state, um, you can't get there. You can't go to these yeah, places. Yeah, that's why I advise and recommend that the free private cities have an access to the open sea which always has been in the last thousands of years the door to the world right mm. that's the gate to the world and um this is even monaco has a has a small small space which is going to the high seas which are not under sovereignty of, of france right so um it, it's not it wasn't necessary to use that in the last 50 years right but if you have to you're happy that, that you have a way out. And I think one other method of, of, um, uh, of, of getting along with that problem with, with pandemic or whatever they come up with climate, uh, that, that's why you are not allowed to fly any longer, blah, blah. One of the ideas is that the free private city and, and likewise models, they are associating with each other 
in some areas and one would be travel and mutual visiting and and things like that so that a, a kind of a new hanseatic league right that is one of the ideas which is already in discussion you better you better define that what is the hanseatic league give me a give me a 101 on the hanseatic league okay the hanseatic league was a kind of a predecessor or predecessor of 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 free private cities because they these cities were still part of empires, mostly of the uh, Holy Roman Empire, but also of other, of Denmark, of Norway, even uh, England uh, or Russia. And these cities aligned together in what was later known as the Hanseatic League. And the main purpose in the beginning was that the business people could just travel freely from one city to another and be protected by the same rules. And... This, they were so successful that they had their own warehouses even in London and and where which were under the Hanseatic League regime. So they were very strangely not a sovereign entity, not a decentralized nation, but all on the other hand, they were. <laughs> they could even wage war against one of the main powers of that time against Denmark. So it was a kind of an association with of free cities, but interestingly there was there was a main city a bit Lübeck because Lübeck was important and they were copying Lübeck rules, but it was completely voluntary. So there was no Lübeck telling other cities what to do. The cities could decide if they want to join the Hanseatic League, um, but and they could decide if they took over Lübeck or Magdeburg law or would create their own law. They only had just to respect if, if people from other Hanseatic cities were coming that they were uh, treated well and they were respected that they had these legal protection and so it was a kind of a um, association um, and and that is something which is in the future where we will see that cities will become more important than nation states less that's my thesis at least then we will probably see a revival of of, of something like Hanseatic League Personally, I live on a, a former farm right in the middle of nowhere. How do I fit into the free private cities model? It seems quite city centric. Or I'm so I'm, I'm I'll be honest. I'm probably not ever going to want to live in a city again. Mm-hmm. I lived in London for seven years, but yeah. I'm I'm over that. You know, like are we talking about jurisdictions as well? Are there going to be places that are? Yeah, big? I think it's absolutely not necessary to be in a city. At the end, is jurisdiction, right? And a few people know that everybody knows about the free and imperial cities, uh, Freie Reichstädte in in uh, in, in the uh, Holy Roman Empire, but they were also free imperial villages <laughs> that were just really villages, just directly under the emperor, no prince, no ruler, no monarch. So this is possible, and I don't see any reason why this should not be the case. I mean, the city is just a practical thing. You can easier set up administration, hospitals, and things so that you can really be on your own. Whereas as a village, you're very often dependent on infrastructure in the surrounding area, which if you have a different jurisdiction, then they will probably capitalize on that. Um, like they do with the Indian reservations, right? They're off, on, on, on paper, they are sovereign nations, but they say, okay, if you want money from the federal government, you follow our rules, right? And that that is the problem with villages and farms being independent jurisdiction. 
I mean, also, secu- uh, yeah, security would be the thing. I mean, what what's easy in a city is to put a wall around it yeah. and have, you know. So is that, how would that be dealt with in that kind of situation? You mean as a village? Or yes. A, I mean, as a, as a jurisdiction, as a, as a kind of area with a large, much larger border than a, than a free Yeah. City. I mean, you, in, in today's world, um, or one of the things that, that is coming to us, if, if we have a different uh, tax and uh, custom system, the country, the host nation will ask you for, for a wall or for, for a fence because uh, to avoid smuggling. And I've seen this. This is they coming with that. Uh, so, uh, for security reasons, uh, you can. Uh, you, I would make it dependent on the environment where you are. If you have a, a free city uh, in, in Switzerland, it's probably not necessary to build a wall. But what you can do today is you can have drones or cheap cameras all around, and or uh, um, uh, 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 cameras that are um, detecting um, temperature, right? No technical term for that but then it's you have only to have two or three people surveying that and patrolling so you can have relatively cheap security for large areas can i ask you some more personal questions about you specifically Mm -hmm. purely out of my own interest here have you got a family for for starters i don't know anything about you yeah i have two sons and what are they into this idea yeah well how old are they first sorry well 29 and 19 so are they are they on board with all this? They stuff? are on board, and are they even working in that kind of arena? Well, not yet. But my older son has a security company in Germany, and I can imagine that he can can deploy that uh, knowledge also in free cities. Once we have my younger son is still studying; he's in 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 the UK at the moment. Uh, but he's running around in a free private cities T-shirt, so I assume that he he's, <laughs> he's also on board. And what about your actual motivation yourself? Because, um, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you, you did all right. You, you, you made a few companies. You've done all right. So what's motivating you? Yeah, I mean, I was asked when I was um, selling my, uh, my shares in the Deutsche Rohstoffagede, a company that I founded, which enabled me to move to Monaco. Why I, I do this? Because I could play golf for the rest of my life and whatever. And said, no, I... In a way, I'm I'm a political person ever was, and and I I I think we have an, a kind of, of 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 role to fulfill, and of course I could start another company, and I'm still somehow connected with the resource industry. Right? But but I think if you have the idea that you have identified something which is wrong and you have a solution, I think it's your obligation to tell your fellow citizens that this is here's another proposal and in my case it was uh, 30 years of of observation of the political field i was um uh, at one point in time a friend of federal ministers of my classical liberal party right in germany and i i watched that and surveyed and i said this system is not going to end well it's not working it's not reformable eventually it will collapse and i thought okay and then they will ask for Napoleon again, a, a strong man, and then you have dictatorship, and then eventually we'll be overthrown, there will be a, a reasonable people there, and then the good people will come into power to want to redistribute everything, and then we'll collapse again. I said, okay, maybe I think about uh, we should do something. And, and since I was becoming more and more libertarian over, over the years, 
Um, and uh, I'm, I'm 50, 50, what is my age? 55 now. So I've, I've, I've served some time on, on the political fronts. Um, I came, hey, why don't we just transfer this? We know the market is the, is the best mechanism to distribute everything so that the needs of the people are served. And in, it's it's ethics, ethically the best system because it, it's relying on voluntary decisions. Why don't we just transfer that system to the system of living together? And then I said, hey, yeah, yeah that, that's it. Yeah, that's it. And now I have to somehow to work it out. So it took me three years and to write a book. And I asked, I interviewed a lot of people and I read a lot. And I think um, because this is now that it was published in 2018, I think the, the main message is, they will remain unchanged there, and and then and and so far, I think this is a good starting point. I don't know what the future will bring, but this is my contribution to the development of the society because that's what probably what I'm good in is observing and and formulating things. I'm they were better business people than 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 me. They're really totally one hundred percent into their business. I'm 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 always interested in everything, so. You have to find also um, what you're good in and, and then deploy it. And I think it gives you, for me, it gives me a lot of satisfaction because when I was starting as a lawyer, I was asking myself, what am I doing here? Right? I'm, I'm, I'm working for people that are coming to a lawyer with things I would never go to a lawyer with. So they are just uh, not, not relevant. And uh, then I was producing papers uh, and then there was a court decision and then it was thrown away. And that, that is really not really satisfactory. It was much better producing golden oil because this is real, right? <laughs> this is something tangible. That was more satisfying. And what I have done now is I would say that gives me the satisfaction that if I die tomorrow, I have at least done something where others can profit from and this is really a good feeling, Tim. It's I think I'm, I'm good at, at that, and 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 I I am always was thinking in very long term. Right? I know a lot of people, especially in the libertarian sector, say, "Hey, it's only about your lifetime and uh, our kids. That's nothing for me." And but I don't think so. I think we are all we are coming from somewhere. and We're going to somewhere, and and it's kind of part of our humankind that we take care of the past and the future generations and think hey is there maybe something we can do to improve um what future generations will do and that is that is satisfying in, in my from for me as a person it's my subjective uh, feeling do you think that the free private cities idea the free cities idea is of its time now and, and um, what I mean is, as a result of even the internet giving people the ideas, libertarianism also, it's got a bad reputation for never really gaining traction. Mm -hmm. But you could easily argue that we've only just entered the free market of ideas, literally in the last sort of 25 years. You know, prior to that, libertarian ideas were spread word of mouth or in books or, you know, or whatever. And now we have this explosion of ideas. You know, you were, we were talking last night about Brazil, for example. Yeah. Massive libertarian population yeah. in Brazil. 
Why is that? Because they heard about it. Yeah, know. no, it's, an, it's, it's a natural development. I mean, this has all started only 1800, right? This Industrial Revolution, Adam Smith, and uh, hey, why are people not just allowed to make contracts with each other? That was totally unusual for thousands of years, right? And it doesn't fit with our herd mentality. So this is still a problem. And that is why libertarianism uh, has, has such a bad reputation, because it's not what people actually are used to and um, but more and more people coming from this um, or let, let's put it another way what our legacy systems are they are coming from the past so we had this uh, who was ruling in the stone age right was probably the strongest the strongest warrior was the was the was the head of of, of the of the tribe or the chief and then he added somebody for making it all making sense that that is the priest right so and these two were running a show for forever and then eventually people said we also want to have a say and 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 then the the, the princess elected uh, the king and then a bigger group elected the president until we have now democracy which is we are still electing a king and and, and that's a, a model that is just not happening in the rest of our lives because we can decide for our own if we want a sparkling or still water, right? If we want uh, to make a holiday in Thailand or in Mexico, that is our decision. We don't need a decision maker for us. And more and more people say, <laughs> I mean, you are now deciding I'm, I'm not allowed um, to travel. I have to be vaccinated. I don't want you to make this decision for me, right? And so even if we are politically a, a tiny minority i think our points are so strong that they will automatically pop up even if you consider yourself uh, from left winger you probably don't want other people to decide for you and if i said hey then make a left wing uh, a free city yeah don't even have to call it free private city make it a cooperative that owns the operating company not a problem as long as you stick to the contract, because otherwise people will leave. So I think the time has come um, because it's obvious. And it's not that Titus Gebel has made a top-down idea of what is best for all. I've just transferred something you already know. It's called a service contract to the area, which is called the market of living together. So it's actually just a transfer idea. It's not totally new. And that gives me the conviction that this is doable because it has been done in other areas of the life that you make a service contract if the service contract is not fulfilled well then you sue the part or you, you keep your money back or then will be a trial we all know this since a long time and now i say government is just a service as any other and there are a lot of people who who, who deny that but i think they have no point I've been having a lot of interesting conversations recently about the notion of online communities manifesting in real life and, and this being a, a strong driver towards these kind of communities. What, what's your opinion on that? Yeah, the internet helps definitely to, fi to find like-minded people all the world because after all, what is a free private city? It's, it's, it's rather based on, on common or on the same ideas and values than on ethnical or religious or whatever uh, basis so actually the whole world is open to that you say hey do you like those ideas then you are our guy right and then please come and i think the the internet communities they can prepare 
more easily uh, to to make free private cities happen in reality. Because one of the problems is if you start from zero, and we have to because we do not want to force people into that system, then you have an empty city. You, you need people coming there. And that is the, one of the big bottlenecks. Um, you can see it here in Lustica Bay. We are sitting at the moment. This is an extremely beautiful private development uh, gated community. But uh, in the summertime, there's a lot of people there. But other than that, not. So how do you make this a real city, right? And then I think it's just not enough to have nice real estate. You need common values. And that's where this comes into play. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never thought of it like that. I, I don't have a great fondness for places like this, funnily enough, for that exact reason. Mm. And um, you're, um, you're finding that a lot in the centre of large cities now, which are just real estate bubbles with no soul. Yeah, There's no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's interesting. So your antidote to that would be to found the, 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 the city on an ideological... Yes common commonality which is kind of i mean we've just come from um uh, montelibro which is mm -hmm. not a free private city concept but it's a community one and that is phenomenal it is it was such a an, you know exciting experience being in a group of people who were all they have the non-aggression principle as one of their core tenants but they're all pretty much libertarians and they are doing that and you do see that's what's going to keep, that's the glue that's going to stick the community together in the end. Um, so yeah, that, that's a, that, I've never thought of it like that way before. Yeah, that's a, that's a good, a good way of thinking of it. So um, how do you stop, you know, terribly horrible ideological cities arising then? They just get competed out of business or what? I can't stop them. I mean, if you are a voluntarist, saying people should voluntarily associate under whatever ideas they want, right? Uh, I mean, then be it so. The only thing is that um, I would say people should have the right to leave, but I'm not going to bomb or invade that cities, as I'm not going to bomb North Korea, Iran, or, or whatever other fundamentalist religious uh, regimes or communist regimes. I, um, I think we have to live with that. There, people have the right to make mistakes. They have to write, and, and they should try out things, right? Because at the end, Tim, if we uh, by force prevent uh, a crazy idea city uh, from being becoming a reality, then people would, at one point in time, make it, right? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe next generation or whatever. So every. Uh, once somebody had says every idea that is around it sooner or later will be tested. And I think this is probably happening. And the good thing about the free private city idea is that this is only limited to certain areas and there will ideally be hundreds or thousands of free private cities. So if you have two or three dropouts, that is, is limited damage, right? If you have a wrong system like the Soviet Union for the biggest country in the world, that is huge. That is a huge, huge impact. But if it's only a, a 10 square kilometer city doing crazy things uh, with volunteers, then I think the, the damage is limited to the rest of the world and to the people themselves. So the, uh, an essential part of the model is, is a small scale. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, can grow. But the problem is if it's getting too big, then it's probably not steerable any longer. You, uh, a very interesting observation is that 
there are basically only 10 companies in the world that have, that, that have a million people and, and only one that have, has two, which is Walmart, right? So and this is not as planned development. So obviously there's a certain size over which, even if you're a monopolist, right, it doesn't really work because a lot of um, things are lost in the hierarchy and administration and, and smaller players are more successful. But that will be found out over time. I mean, we have um, cities of, of 10 million people and, and you can just separate them in, in different quarters and, and then manage them. What do you see the future of the current states then, as in the people in charge currently? Is there, you know... Is that does that eventually devolve to nothing, or is it always going to be there to to Im implement certain law, for example, like you know? Yeah, they will, I think they they have to become more service oriented, right? Otherwise, they will not survive, and that's exactly what uh, interestingly a monarch has said, uh, Prince Hans Adam of Liechtenstein. He said that the state of the future. Uh, has to become a service provider, not a demigod, or, or it will disappear. And that's, that's exactly my view. I think if we uh, we come with those service-oriented models and people are treated as customers and not as subjects, um, and we are much have more privacy and more freedom, I mean, then the, automatically the people will, will come to us and then the state can build walls or punish people or make war against us. But this will only delay the process, will not stop it. So I think eventually the states will uh, will get pressure to be more customer-friendly than they are today, I had which a is a good result. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I had an interesting conversation, a couple of interesting conversations in Lisbon about frontiers and the fact that we lack new frontiers now. The two possible ones being the sea, and space. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about, I mean, obviously the sea, seasteading. What about space? Yeah, definitely. This is, I I think this is what is going to happen. And if people say, hey, I'm so bored and I need to, uh, to cater to a religion or to anything because we ha there's no sense in life and say, hey, <laughs> you can work on better systems of living together. You can you can try to settle on the sea and we can we have probably so many planets now that it seems to be uh, proven that there are planets there and it's just uh, statistically that there will be livable planets so and now we have to find a way to, to get there and try our new things so there's the whole universe <laughs> still open like it was uh, 500 years ago going over the oceans and not knowing what's on the other side now, this is, the, again, the situation, maybe a little bit more problematic because the distance is so so large. But I think this is the future um, of mankind, that it will settle uh, the universe. I don't know when this is going to happen. But for me, there is uh, there are new frontiers, uh, many of them out there. Do we see an evolution, though, or do we just see um, <clears throat> a state, people leaving to find new frontiers, creating free societies, getting conquered, people leaving, creating, or do we see actual devolution? Do we, historically, do we ever see the process of devolution happening and then new sort of f frontiers appearing? Yeah, I mean... Because the two examples, when we were talking about yeah, Venice and... Yeah, Venice yeah, is a good example. But it was conquered in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, but what, after a thousand years. I mean, that is, I would... I would take that deal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> but but to your question, I mean, 
the um, when when the the West Roman Empire was dissolving, that was basically the starting point for these uh, cities and the Renaissance and everything. Okay, there was a dark times in between, but. Uh, Venice started back in 690-something. So they basically, they were directly uh, coming after. And now the, the now we have a big advantage towards that times. If I think what we are currently seeing is that Western civilization is in a crisis and it's, it's going down. And if I look at the skills that people have compared with 100 or 50 years ago, you can have some doubts that this will continue. And so I think... It's just also necessary that new models are popping up that can keep up that high standard of civilization. And these will be free cities, in my view, because they only need a certain uh, amount of land and uh, several thousand people. That's enough, right? So it's much easier than uh, steering a 20 million country or whatever in a new direction. So I think this is something that is maybe accelerated through the downfall of Western society at the moment. And at the same time, it's showing a way out of, of the crisis and the problems that we have. And um, and again, it happened before when when Roman Empire was going down. And what um, came out of it was basically the modern world, right? So it's there's always a, a new beginning. And, a lot of people, when uh, they talk about that, predict uh, a chaotic crash of the of western civilization i'm not sure I, c I can see it transpiring like that i think we're as individuals we normally solve problems faster than those kind of outcomes arise that's my opinion what do yeah, you think i, I think th look we, we we have a much different situation from when the Roman Empire was going down, because it's basically was the only country in the world, right? In, in, in this part of the world. And people have heard about India and China, but they didn't even know how, how to get there. So it was, and, and the others were the barbarians, right? And there was the Persian Empire, which was the only adjacent, bigger civilized nation. So, and then the Roman Empire was going down, there was nothing, right? But now you have... You have so many Western and, and industrialized countries. They're not all going down the same time, right? So, and then you have the internet and we are all connected to each other. And there are like people like me who say, hey, here's a new, a new idea. And, and we are working on that and, and let's start something. And so we have a big advantage to compare to Roman times. We have many more political entities that are also creating arbitrage op options. And we are much better connected so we can learn quicker and we can associate quicker to form new entities so i think it will probably not be the big crash or rather a long decay and during that decay period more and more people will drop out and come to the new systems yeah that that's the smoothest the smoothest transition you see it would be that a slow draining of yeah. power from the state and i think it's also the most realistic yeah. I mean, this is a good thing that we have more than 190 states. If we had only one world government, I would say that that would be a disaster. Do you know much about what happened around the fall of the Roman Empire? Yeah, I've written. What, I've, what, I've what, not what? written, I've read uh, a lot of books um, ab about it, right? It is, um, and, and still Gibbons, this 1700 book from, from this English author, is still, I would say, the, the standard book for 
the downfall of the Roman Empire. Can you describe it? Well, he basically uh, was investigating what happened in, in the last hundred years, right? And you could see really a mechanism, Rome coming from being a successful empire where it was a republic, where the people, only the people who were paying taxes and were willing to defend the country were, were voting and and then it deteriorated into a dictatorship, the, the big kings, right? And then people don't want to do military service any longer. So they hired other uh, peoples like the, the Germans, right? Uh, Germanic tribes were then doing all the, uh, the, the, the soldier work. And, um, and then the, the, it came that the, 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 the emperors didn't realize what... Um, Austrian economy has realized that the more intervention they make, the more problems they create. And then they try to fix those problems, and which was a spiral. And Gibbons re really showing that at the end you were not even allowed to leave the, the, the place where you were living. And, and there were draconian punishment if you're not paying your taxes. And, and there was really bread and circuses that as, as to keep the people happy. So it was... It, it was all there, what we have today, right? It has been done before. It didn't work, and it will not work this time. So very, very interesting uh, uh, book. Also uh, uh, a bit critical about Christianity because, you know, when, when Christianity was, was starting, I would say the first 400 years, was just a, a, a sect a praying end of the world. So they had zero, zero... Uh, incentive to change their well-being at, at now right because they were always waiting the end will come the world would come to an end and and that also he says was because so many people were following this and other other crazy religions right people at the end of the roman empire were um they let them bury themselves uh, bathing in blood for, for 10 minutes, right? That was one of the cults at that time, right? So the people were also, like today, were, were totally nihilistic and not knowing what to think and what to believe. And so if you study the downfall of the Roman Empire, you can, can see a lot of parallels <laughs> to today's world. But why is that? Are we talking about a the natural life cycle of a empire? Mm -hmm. Or are we talking about? I mean, why does that happen? Why don't good Why don't good times create good people? You know. Yeah, I think it's it's a little bit has to do with the uh, with the state, uh, but that explains eighty percent. But but not everything, right? If you have a perfect system and everybody is wealthy, then people get cra become crazy ideas. It, it, it's it, it's okay. inevitable. Yeah, yeah. But the other circle that is inevitable is the state, the 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 political cycle. The political cycle let's start after crisis, right? Then reasonable people come into are elected into power. They have to fix that, and then they come up with okay. Uh, freedom of contract and and rule of law and all those things and and then eventually the uh, society recovers and then the good people are <laughs> the good people in uh, in in, uh, uh, in an ironic way are, are voted into power and they say hey, let's distribute uh, money to the people to the needy which are us and our cronies and of course real needy people and the problem is the state has a monopoly of force that means over time, more and more groups in society find out that 
they can go to the state and steal from others because this is the easiest way to increase your your standard of living is take away from others right but most of us and luckily so most of us don't do that we don't just grab into the neighbor's pockets or go into a shop and just take something without paying most of us feel bad about that and that's a good thing but there's an institution that can do that without punishment which is the state and so more more and more groups find that out and they turn to the state to steal from others and give it to them they call it otherwise but that's the problem if you have a an entity that can do that and they say it's taxes it's social uh, security fees or whatever and um over time you have more and more people leaving the productive sector and going to the redistribution sector that's all basically today you have all these ngos which are state tax financed and then and, and you have all the people working uh in the education sector and in all kinds of sectors which are non-productive so the, the number of people really doing uh, creating wealth is getting smaller and smaller, which leads eventually the state is running out of money. And what is the state doing then? Well, printing money, taking up debt, increasing taxes. Increasing taxes goes up to a certain degree. We know the Laffer curve. Then they're printing money is the easiest way to do that. And printing money means also buying your own bonds, right? This is like printing money. So that's what we see today. So the state has reached a bread and circuses welfare level that is not financeable any longer. So they're doing all kinds of tricks to delay the final outcome, which is insolvency. And then you have big reforms. And then it starts anew. And I was thinking, well, this is the circle, right? What the hell can we do to avoid that? And my solution is this bilateral contract. Because if you have a contract with the city operator, then there is no forum for people to say we want some of the income distributed to us or our friends. Because everybody knows they cannot influence the contract that you and I have. They cannot interfere with that contract because they have an own contract. This is my solution to that problem. Because the problem is really if there is a player like the state that can take something away from others and redistribute it, then eventually everybody will jump on that. And so you have to take away that right from, this, from the state to take just from others um, and redistribute. So what do we do? We say the maximum you have to pay as an a annual fee is this and that. And we cannot change the contract unilaterally. That is basically keeping these uh, wrong incentives that every legislative body has is making new legislation. And then all kinds of people will come, you have to take care of this and that and that, and we need more taxes and more money and because otherwise the world will come to an end. And so it's inevitable that if you have a legislative body that over time the number of laws will increase, the taxes will increase, the indebtedness will increase, and the number of people who are not productive will increase. It's, in my view, absolutely inevitable. So you have to change the system. And I have made a proposal how to do that. Mm. You, when you were talking about the fall of the Roman Empire, you mentioned that they even restricted the movement of people mm -hmm. around the houses, yeah. which is something we see now. Even I'm thinking 15-minute cities, which are, you know, they're, they're, they're using the environment as a reason why. What, what did they do? Why did they do it in Roman times? Is that just the state being so, you know, worried and scared? It was desperation, right? Because people were just moving away to the barbarian 
because they were they said okay there's no rule of law but they're kind of and it's no taxes and and more freedom so um they didn't want to lose taxpayers that that was the main reason that was a desperation and what we are seeing now tim is also kind of desperation i think there's a new class of people who are behaving more and more feudalistic Hmm. and they see that they're losing and now they are becoming totalitarian Hmm. and they I mean, they try to censor the internet now, right? I mean, this is clear. This is not different from everything that has been happening in the past, right? And uh, it's just a a, a different group of people and uh, maybe a bigger group. And they have uh, more power because they, they, they have all the media. But it is, if you forbid people to travel, um, that's not so much different from, from the end phase of the Roman Empire. And at the in, during the end phase of the Roman Empire, was it a, was it a catastrophe? I mean, were people starving because services weren't working and et cetera, et cetera? Well, the, there are some establishment historians who claim that this was not the case. It was a smooth transition, but that's a lie. Um, you have, uh, and, and it's an obvious lie because people take comparison to what we have today. No, um, I think you can show from the, the city Rome that it went down from, I don't have to read numbers, but I think they have had more than 100,000, two or 300,000 or even half a million citizens, and it went down to 20,000. And they could show that um, uh, the, the quality of the materials, um, the plates and, and, and knives and everything was was going down tremendously so you these these dark ages after the fall of the roman empire they are not the myth they really existed and you can uh, from from historical and archaeological uh, uh, sources you can you can find that out what what happened to to big cities like uh, even here in 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 central europe in germany like trier and and cologne there was a real downfall people left cities they starved to death or just and, and the, the sheer number of people was decreasing that, that mean people just died because they couldn't find enough to eat and they or weren't the children were not surviving so you can really see that this this was was traumatic it was probably not happening overnight but it, it was really that um you were still living in the city of rome but uh, between the walls of the former uh, uh, fantastic uh, buildings and and statues. There were cattle grazing. Right, that was the situation in Rome after the downfall. And does anyone write about, or did anyone write about, what turned out to be the best strategy for those, you know, <laughs> to avoid that? <laughs> well, to avoid to avoid that, yeah. But you know, what what was the perfect strategy at that time to sort of mitigate those those okay what well, okay what, what happened what was the um the so-called villas which were um more or less autark uh, farms with the wall around it where they uh, self-subsidy uh, economy was happening and the, and the more wealthy people did that so actually what you are already doing is uh, was the uh, the favored way out for the more affluent Romans at that time. Yeah, I don't have a wall around mine, though, unfortunately. <laughs> well, you probably don't need it yet. But. No, I don't. So, all right, what about now, then? What's the, according to you, what's the best strategy 
going forwards. Yeah, but today you have uh, more options, right? You're, you're still more mobile than past, so you can make this what people call flag theory. You can you can use several countries at, at your residency, and then you jump from one to another. And but I think the um, this is only a temporary solution. The problem is that the states we have today is that they can change the rules overnight, right? You don't know if you are happy now, that can be next government can, can be a nightmare. And that's why I want to create these safe havens with free private cities where you have, you know, these are the rules and they're not going to be changed. Full stop, right? That's it, period. And, and that's what we are creating at the moment. And I mean, we are in a phase, you see this in Honduras, it's, it's still struggling and new government is hostile. We are in the early phase of the 1960s special economic zones, right? That's what, where we are now today with free cities. And uh, But you can still, my, my recommendation is look at smaller countries. Look, uh, um, well, not everybody can afford Monaco, of course, but there are other countries, like Gibraltar. There is Liechtenstein. There is uh, Montenegro, right? There are the Channel Islands. So there are a lot of opportunities there, which were also there at the Roman Empire. But first, nobody knew about them, and you couldn't travel there. This is different today. There are more than 190 states, and within those states, there's a lot of autonomous regions. So you have probably 300 places to choose from. And I guarantee you there are some which are working and will work in the next 50 years and others not. And so you can either jump from one to another or you just help me creating free cities and then we settle there and we stay there and we and, and we, we keep it upright and we defend it and, and for, for us and our children. Talking of creating free cities, are there any projects that you can talk about that are lesser known, new ones? I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, well, if you look at the directory of uh, of the Free Cities Foundation, there are some. I think Sark is certainly an interesting development. This is this uh, Channel Island. Um, we did uh, now a project for two years, which uh, eventually failed. So that's why you haven't heard about Tipolis projects um, in Africa. Right? We, we got a law passed by Parliament. Uh, we got a contract negotiated with the state's investment agency of 40 pages. And then there was a change in government and it turned out that the new leader is not in favor. Where exactly was this? It was uh, in Sao Tome, Principe. Sao Tome. Mm -hmm. So this project failed and that can happen again. So I'm, I'm not um, uh, talking about uh, current projects because I don't want to endanger them. But I know about... Our projects, uh, uh, there will be a project upcoming in the next three to five years or several. You know, our new strategy at Tipolis is that we are reaching out to several governments at the same time so that we can mitigate this political risk uh, a bit. And we want to create something what we call international city. Um, by Tipolis that is um, uh, mostly after the free private city model and um, then dependent on the on the local situation what the host nation wants uh, so we can adapt the structure a bit and the idea is that if you are a resident of an international city uh, you can easily then um, move to another international city so that is again this Hanseatic League approach a bit where you have um, 
uh, have additional advantages of being um, a resident of one of those. I know from other groups that are also working on similar models. Um, I would say Africa is a, is a hotspot, then um, Central America. Um, Bitcoin City is also something that could move into that direction in El Salvador. A uh, very uh, innovative government there. Then you have few projects in Central Asia, but this is um, this is more or less is the centers of that. You could expect something in the Pacific also happening, but I'm not aware of any current project there. Um, Europe, <laughs> rather not, right? Because either it's the European Union who does not even allow for special economic zones, or it's countries that want to become member of the European Union. So it's very hard to to get something done here. Really? So Europe's off the table? Well, for the moment, yeah. right? But uh, I mean, that, that depends. If we have some international cities up and running somewhere else and they are successful, then I think we can knock on the doors on some European countries and say, hey, have a look. Do you want the same? Yeah. <laughs> and we do not know how long the European Union will last, right? Eventually it will collapse. I don't know when, but it's, um, it's in my view, inevitable. And, and then this will be open, right? You, you have seen when the UK became uh, uh, or went out with Brexit, then they immediately said we want to establish 10 special economic zones, that, which are no, unfortunately rather traditional ones. They have no innovations in there but um from from a from a legal standpoint but um it can be also next time next country saying okay we are open to international cities what's your view on the result of brexit how do you how do you view that in in total net positive it's a good good thing uh, i think it's definitely uh, typical that you have some disadvantages in the, in the short term but uh, mid and long term uh, it's leaving the empire before it's going down. And okay, it costs, costs a price, right? But I think this is, uh, this is a good thing and other countries will probably follow. And in, rega- with, with, um, in respect with free, uh, to pre- free cities, not really applicable or, or applicable, the, 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 the UK in its current state. Well, I had the hope that we could convince the government to make one of these uh, designated special economic zones a little bit more autonomous, but we were not successful. <laughs> <laughs> okay, enough said. Yeah, enough said. Great. Um, Tejas, thanks. Uh, you know, we've been talking for a while now. I think everyone needs a break. But um, one last question, which is, an, uh, is a funny question because I know exactly what you're going to say. Um, it's what I ask everyone on this podcast. I'm going to have to change the rules slightly for you. It's a hypothetical question. Um, uh, if you took a sabbatical from what you're doing now, or if you just took a sabbatical with unlimited budget, what would what would you what would you do? What would you do during that year? A one year sabbatical. But you've got a you've got a patron who's like, here's a blank check, but what are you going to do? Yeah, but, but it has to last a year. I'm not allowed to invest that money in free cities. No, you can do whatever you okay, want. Okay, yeah, then I would. But it, but it's a year project, so at the end of that year, the money disappears. Okay, okay, yeah, I would uh, use that money as a collateral to negotiate with governments. I have ten billion in my bag, and we are starting here a new free city, and uh, I get 
done as much as I can before the year is over. Because alone the, the money alone in the bag is a very, very strong argument when negotiating with government. So I would definitely use that. So that is that the Achilles heel of the movement then currently? If you if you have a, a sort of Elon Musk behind you, it's far easier to implement. Yeah. Definitely. Hundred percent. Yeah. Well there you go. We gotta start getting billionaires to get interested in this. I tried this. I put a letter in my book, say letter to billionaires, but it it turned out that most billionaires just wanted to create their own cities, right? And I would say 90% of them only later find out that without legal autonomy, <laughs> all of their super ideas aren't, aren't, can't be made a reality, right? So, What do you think about Elon, though? He's, he's morphing into a bit of a libertarian, isn't he? Yeah, I think he has some principles and he has the right direction, at least in, in, in many di- many uh, view- ways. Um, that he is um, he's defending free speech and against all these censorship uh, uh, industrial comp- complex who came up. We have to protect people against misinformation. Well, the point is that when you go back to COVID, the, the most of the misinformation was come from from mainstream media and state uh, authorities. Right. So and maybe uh, Elon is turning it around. No, I admire that he is really holding his ground because most of these billionaires that I know, they they give in if they have um, uh, the public opinion against them. And um, that doesn't mean that I think Tesla is not overvaluated, but <laughs> I think uh, uh, Elon is somebody who is is walking the talk, and I admire that. And I think Peter Thiel once said, uh, "Don't uh, don't uh, cope with Elon, don't trot Elon." Right, and probably he knows him, so probably has a reason to say that. And um, yeah, I think it's um, it's good that he is there. I mean, arguably, he's one of the most important would be one of the most important proponents of the free cities model because he's probably going to be the first guy to to get to mars and mars is a new frontier i mean what are you going to do you need a governance system don't you yes and he has already said that uh if he's going to mars this is not a government affair sure so you have no place there he yeah, said yeah. because they wanted <laughs> of course they established united nations and blah blah uh rules there right or the us or whoever he said no, no that's not that's a new yeah. thing yeah. right and i don't know if he ever have has heard about free cities and and things like that but uh, my hope is that eventually our ideas and and my ideas will just come through because they are just uh um, consistent and and plausible. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, even if I, I know about that, the UN actually have a, a, a space treaty already, don't they? I think it was drawn up quite a long time ago. About no one, a bit like Antarctica, no one can actually kind of make claim to a place. Yeah, but then again, like exactly. who's going well, to yeah, exactly? <laughs> <laughs> who's going to stop you when you're, yeah. you know, what is it? A year, I mean, year and a half travel away. You had this. Uh, this treaty before, right? The Treaty of Tordesillas, where Portugal, Portugal and Spain were just distributing the world in two parts, right? Well, at the end, the English, the French, the, the Dutch had just took their parts, right? Which was also against this treaty. So this is about the same with the UN claiming all space that they can can make any claims on that. Yeah, yeah, I know. The the the, the it's so exciting. It's, I I have a, unfortunately I have a feeling we won't be there to see it, but but the the new frontiers we've never lived through that time ourselves of being able to to flee to a place that 
that where you could literally start your own colony or start your own idea. Um, but the, uh, the next generation may be in that position. It'd be phenomenal. phenomenal. Yeah, and it's, it's a little bit like, I mean, if you are interested in those things, then you wake up at night and say, hey, shit, our society is falling apart. And I mean, in my case, 3,000 years of Germany coming to an end, it, this is making me sad, right? And on the other hand, I say, okay, this is a little bit comparable to what some people probably have felt when the Roman Empire was coming down. And our task is now for for us in the next generations to to find a, a a solution to that problem. What do we do, right? And I think we found that, and and now it's it's really something where I say, okay, we have to work on that. And even if we don't see it by ourselves, or I mean, th this is probably not happening. There will be some free cities. Uh, around and maybe they will fail again but uh, uh, like in Honduras if there's a hostile government or all the big countries are uh, allying against free cities or something like that can happen but the idea will not go away ever and that's a good thing and we have we we have shown case showcases and the good thing about 190 plus countries they're all competing against each other right they will never all ally against free cities so this is our chance and and, and so far we we our task is now to create a, a new world and we are in in a in a time which is i i actively um was uh Uh, testimony of the downfall of the East Bloc, 1990, right? I really, and we thought, okay, that's it with communism, socialism, and um, some some predicted the end of history, as you know, right? Well, it's not, right? And we are now in a situation where the civilization that we know is is coming into a situation that we had never seen before, and something is wrong with that. We all can feel that, and now it's our task to work on a new thing, and it's will be eventually a better thing. It's always like that. If we are in a good environment, right, good times, right? There's no need for change. If the times are getting better, well, we have to think about, we have to work. And that's what's, what's our task now. And I think it's also, as I said before, it's also uh, satisfying to, to present solutions, even if they are half-baked or, or just attempts, It's also for, for the next generations they can take up because that's also with Bitcoin, right? I mean, people who are born now, they know Bitcoin from birth. Mm. We didn't. For us, even the, the, iPhone, the, the smartphone was a new thing. But the people who are born now and maybe people who are born in 10 years, they know, okay, free cities, yeah, of course. Right? <laughs> and this will change the whole mindset. And I think we we have a good chance that this nation state government that now tries to regulate everything in our life in the name of climate health whatever will come to an end they they have peaked and then somehow feel it that's why they now became so becoming so aggressive but the solution cannot be to establish the same system again or a dictator We have to really come up now with something that fits into the 21st century and that is voluntary decision-making, government as a service. And like you say, um, the idea will never go away. And I think we should leave it there. I think that's a great way to end. Titus, thank you. 
enlightening speaking to you. I've had a wonderful time. And actually, I think we will have a part two because I really want to go deep into uh, medieval city-states, if that's all right. Yeah, I I can prepare for that. And this (laughs) is an interesting thing. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks very much and, uh, and good luck with everything, of course. You're welcome. Thank you.